Welcome to the Supply Chain Pioneers Podcast, where we highlight industry leaders on the forefront of innovation and technology in planning, procurement, and logistics. Hosted by your supply chain pro to know, Ulf Venn. But at the end of the day, you know, a company has two main goals, and the supply chain is such an essential activity to deliver on these goals. So the key to an effective and efficient supply chain risk program is to strike that balance between the risk investment and the desired performance. My career kind of spans three decades in the field. And I also worked with the World Economic Forum and a variety of government agencies. I felt so passionately about this need to address these reoccurring issues. I even wrote a few books. Supply Chain Pioneers is powered by EverStream Analytics. EverStream gives you the predictive insights and analytics to make your supply chain faster, smarter, safer, and leaner. Go to everstream.ai to book your demo today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Supply Chain Pioneers. And with me today, I have Gary Lynch, and he is the founder of The Uncertainty Advantage, He's a board member, an advisor, and he's also an author. Hi, Gary. How are you? I'm doing well today. Thanks, Hope. Good. And we will talk today about all of your projects and your great experience you have in supply chain risk management and in risk management in general. So I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Perfect. Let's hop right into it with my okay. first question that directly hopefully will help introduce a little bit the person that you are. So from cybersecurity to risk and security to supply chain risk management, what made you double down on supply chain risk management? Because you have a lot of experience in all of these fields. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, um, I, I did take a while to reflect on that as well, because uh, I've made a, a bunch of changes starting in the cyberspace. But at the end of the day, you know, a company has two main goals when I look at a company. And the supply chain is such an essential activity to deliver on these goals. And the company must, you know, at the end of the day, get the product to the customer while balancing it with the desired profitability. In other words, not go broke doing it. And the reality is in this uncertain and volatile world we live in, it threatens the organization's ability to do both of these things successfully. So the key to an effective and efficient supply chain risk program is to strike that balance between the risk investment and the desired performance. And that's been my personal challenge as well. My career kind of spans three decades in the field. In the early years, I focused on defensive activities like risk analysis, risk measurement, risk mitigation, firefighting, and evangelizing fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You know, it's an event-driven industry. That's where I spent my time. But then I had a chance. I worked as an executive partnering with leaders from Fortune 500 companies like NVIDIA, BAA Systems, Atsuka Pharmaceutical, Pepsi, Roche, Nuclear, uh, Westinghouse Nuclear, and others. And I also worked with the World Economic Forum and a variety of government agencies. But I consistently saw the same supply chain risk issues cropping up, impacting customers, patience, investor, investors in the bottom line. So Ulf, I, I felt so passionately about this need to address these reoccurring issues. I even wrote a few books, Single Point of Failure, Uncertainty Advantage, At Your Own Risk. And I changed my career focus from 
a practitioner, to a consultant, to an industry analyst, and then to a practitioner again, back to a consultant. And I spent time as an entrepreneur, which was the most fun. So in 2015, I took some time off to delve further into the research and try to address some of these critical questions, these unanswered questions that executives and leaders have been asking. Like, why can't leaders get the supply chain intelligence they need to make critical decisions in disruptive times? Why in many instances don't leaders and managers acknowledge and act on risk intelligence? And why is it so difficult to get their attention sometimes? You know, we talk about the seat at the table and why are so many organizations focusing on compliance rather than thriving or exploiting the value of risk intelligence and the investment? So bottom line is I quickly realized I was onto something because they've continue to be no comprehensive solution or the ability to measure return on the horizon. So I was sitting there with all these tried and true methodologies, data, technologies that I had to help build throughout my career. I knew I could help these leaders on a greater scale and then finally help the leaders tackle supply chain risk head on and turn it into competitive advantage. And then lastly, I also believe I can create a value and scalable business, commercialize it from those experiences and hey, make some money at it as well. While doing all of what you just described, you were also a founding member of the Advisor Committee on Supply Chain Competitiveness by the United States Secretary of Commerce. And you also received a U.S. Secret Service commendation for your action during 9-11. What makes U.S. supply chain stay competitive in the global economy? And what advice would you give U.S. supply chains in order for them to keep their competitive edge? I think that's a really good question. I'll try to take that kind of head on from a U.S. perspective, but I'll also touch on some of the experiences I've had in some other countries, in Japan and Germany, especially where there was certainly a uniqueness to the way that end products were delivered uh, to customers, especially when you deliver in heavy machinery and things like that too. So first and foremost, I think what helped U.S.-based supply chains stay competitive is a clear understanding of market priorities, acting with urgency, relentless firefighting and a positive mindset, you know, like nothing is too dire. We can overcome everything, even though sometimes that's very dangerous. And lately, I think the the differentiator for these organizations, both the U.S. and abroad, have been the understanding of interdependency amongst assets in the supply chain. You know, first, kind of the top priority is that market perspective and outside in. And that's what I described in Uncertainty Advantage. Um, this can be the products and services that generate the most revenue for the company, it uh, could be the most important from a strategic value, value standpoint or a cash flow standpoint, or what's critical to protect the health and safety of their patients, of the community, of the market. However, you know, the challenge is always to get everybody to agree and clear, you know, and then clearly articulate the policy or what they see as the priority to their stakeholders. And for me, this became the rallying point and really the energy behind really my interest in pursuing the field the way I'm pursuing it now from this so-called competitive advantage standpoint. It's the rallying point. It's the benchmark for measurement. And without it, you have inefficient processes, technologies, and behaviors, uh, and quite frankly, organizational chaos. So whenever we start with the conversation, whether it be for the Department of Commerce or for an organization, we refer to these as kind of the the rallying points is these high value supply chain. Very obvious when you say it like that, it's like what matters most, but how you define it and quantify it and really get the attention of the executives and the market leaders is what's most important. 
So that's a starting point. It provides strategic focus. It unifies the functional silos, which we all kind of are challenged with when you are install, design, and install a, a solution. And you have to work through procurement, logistics, and commercial manufacturing. And then, of course, all the other external uh, partners, uh, internal partners from the corporate standpoint. This is kind of that rallying point. And it's happened with all those companies I mentioned before, NVIDIA and Westinghouse and Rockwell. It was really, in, in the life sciences industry, it's pretty straightforward. It's it's the franchise drugs, the blockbuster drugs. But the key there is not only is it the rallying point, it gives you a, an opportunity to measure return on risk invested capital. And I think that's the differentiation that gets the executives engaged but it's not an easy task to measure that. When staying competitive, I think you know that's pretty much straightforward, and that gives you the context and ultimately the fit. And of course, it's always about the ability to collectively, continuously collect, organize, analyze, and monitor your supply chain and supply chain risk data at a granular level. And this was really key with the committee as well, so that you can generate the intelligence to make responsive and informed decisions. Um, you'll need digitalization and a connected model. I'm not a big fan of control towers, honestly. I just think they're too big and generic and, you know, trying to fit all the data into it is tough. I think the connected data model is the way to go. And what I call an activity model, which really represents the operational flows and processes, um, turning that and digitizing that to me are the two key elements there. And that's mostly what I've tried to persuade others <laughs> and work with others to figure out if that's right. And I think one of the most important points is whatever you do, it has to be very, very simplified. The questions that are being asked by the folks that are asking the committee to address some of these items are pretty straightforward. You know, um, they, they want them to provide some discussion on, will they be disrupted? Do they need to take action? How fast do they need to take action? What resources and activities are required? And what's the opportunity? And then another issue, and, and I'll kind of wrap it up here, but um, another issue is that, you know, companies are dealing with this cost and effort of monitoring the supply chain for disruptive events. And organizations and governments are doing the same thing. And it's great news that everybody has been investing in event monitoring software. In my opinion, the bad news is they're not fully committing to a risk mitigation investment. They're digitizing, maintaining, and monitoring the supply chain data. That, that, that's a risk mitigation effort, which I would refer to as kind of producing information. And so like business intelligence, in order to do that, requires the support, the full support, which requires the infrastructure to support the detection and the filtering and the escalation and honestly, that's kind of, here's a little plug, that's kind of the uh, spot that, you know, Uncertainty Advantage is trying to fit in is to do that on their behalf, especially for small to mid-sized companies and companies in the uh, in the drug industry. You need to really have actionable advice that, that gets down to an operational level that affects, so they can see the effect to inventory, capacity, forecasting, and things like that. So I, I think, you know, the readiness and the ability to measure the impact on operations and having the best action to respond are also vital to kind of capitalizing on this change. It's not a one size fits all, right? It's, it, and it doesn't all happen at once. So it's kind of an iterative process as well. Quick follow-up question, because I, I was very surprised about your take on control tower, which I, which I can understand, by the way, in part. But another guest on this podcast once said, if you ask 10 people about their definition on control towers, you get 10 different answers. So is it 
that maybe the way control towers are built right now are just too broad in scope and therefore it gets too clunky and wouldn't a more, I would call it crawlborg run approach where you stay a little bit more agile in implementation and maybe start with risk management as being one of the focus points, right? Because it, it helps provide focus, firefighting, logistics issues is something that feels natural to supply chains. Wouldn't that already work? Or is that something that you're really against, even if described like that? Well, yeah, I, you know, it, when somebody makes a statement like I just made about control towers, you always have to re, not refine it, but you always have to clarify why you are saying what you're saying. So you're asking a good question. Uh, my question, I have, to, I, I mean, my response really has to do with the uh, the experience I've had, uh, and in spe and specifically, as far as control tower being a maybe an end all solution uh, at some point in the future, maybe. But at this point, I think it's just too early. I still think that a lot of executives and leaders and managers are starting to really digest what risk management means, what the investment means, how they can slowly you know, bring commonality together. I mean, if you're doing a risk assessment or if you're looking at your high value supply chains, you know, the products that matter to you most, maybe you can think about the some of the common aspects of cyber assessment and supply chain assessment and supplier assessment. And that, that, that all makes sense. Again, I'm, I'm talking from a risk standpoint, but the reality is you have to kind of, uh, it not, I think from my standpoint is the behaviors you have to analyze at the same time. And because we're still rewarding functional behavior in most instances, there's a lot of lip service to rewarding you know, the whole, right? But when it comes down to it and someone gets their bonus at the end of the year or a group gets their bonus based on a certain amount of cost reduction or a certain amount of progress against something, it's really hard to get them to rally on a common denominator unless they're rewarded on that common denominator. And that's where I've seen the struggles in most of the organizations I've worked in. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, so maybe later, not sooner. But the connected data strategy, I like that because it allows you to really start moving right away and provide some reward. And, mm -hmm. you know, and um, okay, so this isn't a plug, but I'm going to use it as a plug. This is something that I've successfully done and I'm doing right now is being able to take some of the data, the alerts, the supply chain data, the risk data, the risk profile and assessment data, some of the market data, connect it all, and then be able to give a much better, uh, much better business intelligence. Let's move on to another topic, one that I really am super curious about, because you, you are a legend in this space because you wrote several books on risk management and supply chain risk management from the uncertainty advantage to single point of failure and at your own risk, which all were mentioned already, but also you co-authored supply chain disruptions. So for today, because we can't do all of them, but I would like to talk about two of those. And let's start with single point of failure. There you elaborated on the 10 essential laws of supply chain risk management. Can you maybe share your top three out of these 10 with us today on the podcast? Yes, I can. I'll actually, uh, I'll take the two and I'll try to make them somewhat brief as well. Um, that was a fun journey, single point of failure, because single point of failure was when I had that complete mindset about playing defense and that I finally felt by working as a practitioner 
um, then a market analyst and an industry consultant, then moving over to the risk and insurance space and looking at it through a finance lead that I had like a 360 lens. And I worked for a company in that time, Marshall McLennan, that had um, a global presence. And I got to work with all these great companies. And I thought, okay, now the, the solution is let's get to that point where we really can look at this thing from a defensive posture and a, and a balance, as I mentioned uh, early on with the trade-off between risk and performance. Uh, and it led me down a certain path, which changed later on, which on certainly advantage was more on the competitive side, but that's where it started. So I guess the one thing, um, the two laws that stand out was for me was law number four, demand trumps supply. I think we learned this during COVID. You know, most of the organizations focused on the supply side, right? Many didn't take the time to model scenarios, interdependency, interdependencies, and behaviors when there was a shock to demand, you know, case in point, toilet paper, and look at really the issue around supply chains and human behavior uh, when the element of scarcity is introduced or the uh, subject of scarcity or even just some fear is introduced, which can also be used as a um, competitive weapon or distraction. So what happens is we've seen the human behaviors being amplified on the demand side. And so the characteristics are that the forecast that you know gets thrown out the window, everything becomes irrelevant, and you're because you're dealing with three behaviors. And I think these three behaviors are really good for your what if scenarios. And they are, you know, what are the hoarders going to do? What are the speculators going to do? Those that can potentially make some money on the on the amb ambiguity at that time. And what are the panic buyers going to do? And I think it's that simple, trying to keep it that simple. So one number, I think it was four, was, was one of my favorites. Another one was uh, never set up your suppliers for failure. And when I wrote the book and did the research, it took on a different meaning than it does today, in my opinion. In the past, it was always, you know, know your downstream supplier or your upstream suppliers. Obviously, it's not optional. It's mandatory. And you have to go beyond that. And and. Of course, you've got to look at that from multiple programs, including diversity, uh, slavery, and, and, and a lot of other issues that we deal with in the trust area. And of course, the old adage of trust but verify still stands strong. You can really depend on these other companies as you're doing to manage. I don't think you can man depend on these companies to manage risk at the end of the day, right? They're custodians and their business models really drive how they're going to behave. And I think that's the one thing that um, I've just spent a lot of time on in the last decade is trying to understand that, you know, like even the term resilience, um, resilience in the airline industry, you know, uh, if you run an airline, it, it, re resilience is a given. It's not that you want to bounce back. In fact, you want to have perfection because you don't want 98 out of 100 flights, you know, successful and two not, right? So um, the term gets a little diluted when you move from industry to industry, but you know ultimately your suppliers and your contractors and your distributors they're accountable, but they're not accountable, right? You are accountable to customers and investments and investors. And honestly, when I started to look at this, I had to go back in time and I went back to my Michael Porter books on competitive advantage and competitive strategy. And I looked at five forces and you know uh, really started to re-understand the application of that as it applies to risk. So understanding the structure of your supplier's industry and the business that they operate, their financial, operational, and market drivers, and the broader ecosystem now becomes the, you know, the anti or the mandatory 
requirement when you're dealing with a particular industry. Case in point, you know, I mentioned it in the book was the uh, the melamine crisis when we had all the the, the milk powder contamination. We had uh, brokers kind of in the middle of the flows tainting the milk with melamine in order to raise the protein content. But if you look at the industry structure, you had you know single farmers in China for the most case uh, had a cow or two. They were the contributors to the early part of the supply chain. The cows were unhealthy at that point in time. In fact, I found out afterwards that their partner, Fonterra, and not to mention names, but in uh, New Zealand, because they were very aggressive in fixing the problem, when they discovered the problem and they wanted to continue the business, at the time, they started exporting cows from New Zealand, which is you know the capital of the dairy product, and, and moving it to China. Again, un- understanding the ecosystem, the longer value chain, and then having the support and being able to not only you know track it down and track the flows, but being able to digitize it, being able to put it into visuals, um, that has been huge uh, from, from our standpoint and probably greatest contribution. So although I love the rule when I or the law when I set it up originally about suppliers, it's kind of taken on uh, a new meaning. And it's more about the business and knowing how money is made, who wields the power and the influence, who has the leverage. And that includes the foreign governments and trade policy, you know, case in point, what everybody's kind of dealing with from a U.S. perspective regarding China, as an example. So um, this becomes the, uh, the the critical point. Let's move to your next book, which is The Uncertainty Advantage. And in the book, you talk a lot about the five principles of uncertainty advantage. And they are really cornerstones. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, on these five principles and how they can be leveraged. Honestly, when I started the book, again, I was an entrepreneur at the time. I decided to... Uh, change the career uh, focus again. And I, I really wanted to work on this book because I had been through a number of experiences about creating value and having the value then being recognized at different levels in the organization. And in this case, all that supply chain data and intelligence was creating value. And it wasn't creating value just for operations and legal and other areas. It was creating value for the CEO, for the market, for differentiation. So I had to explore this further. And so what I did is I decided I was going to write the book and kind of keep the business going. And I did that for my budgeted year. And as it turned out, a year went by and I was very unhappy. I had ripped the manuscript up three or four times because I just wasn't happy. I didn't think I was saying anything of value. Uh, And so as a desperate move and as, you know, things got tighter, I decided to reach out through LinkedIn to 10 CEOs who had experienced major disruptions and had come out of it in a very positive way. Oddly enough, I did this through an in-mail, oddly enough, nine of them came back and responded and said they give me the time to explain the situation. And so I tried to document those. There's 16, 17 case studies in the book. Hopefully, you know, you shorten them in, in a book and you, you know, try to get to the, the, the salient points quickly. That for me was the fun part. And uh, one gentleman, John Craffick, who I have a great deal of respect for, he was running Hyundai at the time, North America, and went over to Google and basically ran Waymo for a a while. He had some just absolutely super comments about this whole idea of being market focused as opposed to operationally or financial focused. So I'm just, that's a little bit of the background on the book. So the the cornerstone, uh, I think the five uncertainty advantage principles are the following. First of all, it was focus. Uh, what I saw was that quest for market advantage 
kept them up at night. The leadership team, yes, they care about operational disruptions, but that's also, they have a team of folks to work on that. Um, but what they want to know is, is the market changing? Is the market moving? Or am I going to be displaced in the market because of this particular event? You know, is it, 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 what, what are the market dynamics, you know, again, with, for the what if scenario, what are the market dynamics if I'm no longer in the market or my competitor is no longer in the market? And this is something that the risk professionals can help with. And these are some of the lessons from some of the senior leaders, I think, that have had great success uh, as well. So, you know, organizations are uh, rewarded for taking risks and they're always pushing the envelope. That's not going to change. So that's accepted. And, and, you know, you have to build your strategy around that. So it's important or it's imperative that we understand the expectations in the market first and all the risk mitigation activities will follow. So that was kind of the leading principle. The other one uh, also took me back in time and it was navigation. And I honestly was guilty for the same problem. Manage risk, navigate uncertainty. There is a difference. And I know these are the holy wars here when you bring up this issue of what's the difference between risk and uncertainty. But I'm going to just use a definition that I really enjoy. Uh, uncertainty represents the unknown, and it really requires and it requires the essential elements of risk management, which we previously discussed, insight and intelligence. You need to produce data. But you need to have enough intelligence about the uncertainty in order to get to that point where you could model and measure the probability of a possible outcome, you know, where you think something's going to happen. So before you can start getting really into the mechanics of risk management, you first have to produce the data, like we've been talking about since the beginning of the podcast, right? So here's the odd thing about this. Uh, in the middle of my research, I realized that one of the speakers, I think, that was pretty dominant in the 20s, 1920s, a guy named Frank Knight, who was an economist for the University of Chicago, wrote a book called Risk, Uncertainty, and Profit. And it talked about uncertainty and the transformation of uncertainty to risk and how to change it into profit and how to look at it through a competitive advantage. Frank Knight educated people like economists like Milton Friedman and others. And a disciple of Milton Friedman and, and some of these other economists was um, a, a gentleman who was running risk for a, a bank, Bankers Trust, which was a competitive bank to the one I was working for at the time, which was Chase Manhattan Bank. But we followed the same operational risk management principles. And Sanford, uh, Charles Sanford, I believe was his name, started the concept of derivatives. So Bankers Trust, you know, uh, introduced the derivative instruments. If I had it correct, I'm probably sure that there's going to be a lot of folks that will say I had it incorrect, but this is what I found in my risk inquiry. And so my point is, if you think about it in that context and you separate the uncertainty from the risk, you realize you can't manage uncertainty. You have to get the intelligence and you have to navigate it and you have to keep getting the intelligence until you get to the point where you get to the tipping point of being able to manage risk. So that was my kind of my favorite second principle. This third, I think was the most obvious, but was not acknowledged. And that was markets move fast, but organizations don't. So getting things done, as we all know, in big organizations is very hard. I think static risk programs are ineffective and costly. I mean, I hate to say it because that's where I grew up and it's great to have the risk programs, but how do you go about defining a continuity risk program when there's so many moving parts internally and externally, and you don't have control over so many of those moving parts, including your suppliers? Back to the five forces, competitors, suppliers, displacement. I mean, did Western Digital have the ability um, way back when, when we had the floods in Thailand to 
bring back the hard drive industry in its current state, you know, with the, with the technology that was being produced then? Not really. Uh, however, they were smart enough to realize maybe that was a great entry point to bring solid state drives onto the market. You know, they had been experimenting, bringing it forward. And so Seagate too, they all kind of jumped on it. So I think that was, um, you know, one of the challenges, I think, with static programs and transitioning away from static programs and the need to produce continuous intelligence and then capture it into a digital replica is was, was critical, was the critical element. And honestly, as a consultant, when I was doing the consulting, it was like, come analyze our systems, analyze our suppliers, and you do the analysis. And then they call you back a year later and say, hey, can you come in and do the analysis again? And it's like, why don't we retain this footprint? Why don't we retain the, you know, this is the change management function now, right? But but now we're getting there, which, it, and thankfully, you know, platforms like the one you're very familiar with are good platforms to start with because you have some place to put it and some place where you can look at it through a change management lens. They're mature and they capture all elements of it. So um, the other ones is details, 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 the devil's in the details, and this demands relentless pursuit. And again, I would organize that in the context of the way the business is conducted and what makes money. Uh, honestly, when I look at a product supply chain, I look at that product part, supply chain end to end. I look at it through the lens of physical assets, digital assets, human capital, and third parties. And I use that as kind of my common denominator. Now, the company or organization I'm working with might not want to pursue all those at once. Uh, they might want to do it over time, but I got to be able to capture all that because that's what's needed. Those are the contributors to make that supply chain move. And then last one is a priority. Growth trumps risk. Let's never forget that, you know, risk management. Yeah, risk management must demonstrate value. But the reality is if there's an opportunity to make money, we know what's going to happen. And sometimes even if they have to break the rules or bend the rules, I'm sorry, just speaking from reality and experience. Uh, yeah, they'll find a way. <laughs> and it's necessary as well, right? Because in the end, we all as companies have to grow because that's just the world we're living in. And yeah, the mm -hmm. therefore, uh, accepting risk can also be an option. Okay. So I, I really love that you uh, shared with us the origin story of the Uncertainty Advantage, a book, because my next question is around your company, the Uncertainty Advantage. And the origin story, because you you recently in this year founded the Uncertainty Advantage as a company, and I would be very curious to hear more about the reasoning and also your vision of this company now and for the future. You know, I mentioned you know I've I've had a long career um, that could be a positive or a negative as long as you continue to keep your mind open and continue to learn because there are better ways to do it than some of us believe. You know, over time you. You know, you, you, but that, that's the key. Um, but I still see this desperate need for actionable intelligence. And I think, honestly, the last couple of years, post-pandemic, post to me, this has been the biggest change in the industry right now. This whole fear, uncertainty, and doubt selling we were talking about earlier, we don't have to do it as much anymore. The leaders want solutions. They want actionable intelligence, not just intelligence. And I think, you know, from my perspective, that's where I believe the great opportunity is. And there's a huge opportunity for all those in the field to take, you know, at a base level first, you need that ability, put everything else aside, you need that ability to monitor events and fight fires. 
you, you just, you know, it, it, it's reactionary, but it's going to lead you to uh, preventative measures, but you have to start somewhere. And we are always in the business of having to <laughs> justify our value, right? So, uh, re, re, you know, a, a return on risk invested capital. So um, for me, uh, this was the desperate need and the change, this need for actionable intelligence, not just actionable and not just intelligence, but actionable intelligence. So don't tell me, you know, um, I just have an event. You got to take it to the next level and you got to tell me how it's ultimately going to impact my customers and how it's going to impact profitability. The two things I opened up with. And, and that's a long journey. And that's a journey that you're going to take with a variety of people in the organization over time. But ultimately, if you keep focus on that goal, I thought that would be the greatest opportunity. And it's even for right now, I've been focusing on the life science industries. It's very, very hard, especially when you're running in parallel, you're, you're, you're running an organization to drive new medicines and new therapies into the market, new medical devices, new, you know, uh, biotechnologies, you know, the CAR T and some of the other uh, advancements. And then you have to think about this problem and everything that's used to support it. And you got to think about uh, in that industry, quality kind of trumps everything else. If you don't have stability, you don't have quality. So again, I think leaders are looking for folks like us, the collective us, and those hopefully on the call as well, to not only give them intelligence, but as we say, simple intelligence with visuals, and simplicity, relevancy, which we've all been striving for, is making sense out of the intelligence that they're getting. In other words, getting that uncertainty and defining it. And then what do they do about it? And quite a few organizations and leaders have come to me and said, just give me my three options and tell me what happens if I don't do it. You know, and if you kind of think that simplistically, you can design your solutions around that. So that's kind of led to uncertainty advantage. Um, I went through uh, over a year trying to come up with a name for this new organization while I was building it. And uh, uh, a colleague of mine came to me and said, uh, Gary, what are you wasting all your money doing that for? Why don't you just call it Uncertainty Advantage? You wrote a book on it. Just call the name <laughs> Uncertainty Advantage. So, uh, yeah, it, another lesson learned, right? Uh, so that's that's kind of where I stand. And, you know, like I said, when I spoke to John Craffick and some others about the challenge, you know, they demonstrated um, I, I, I just love that story about we we had the tsunami and the earthquake in Japan, the unfortunate events. I love the story about uh, Merck, uh, the uh, paint. Uh, they had a paint factory there that was producing Zerolec and, and, and it had been affected. So it was out. And as a result, the paint pigment wasn't available in the market. So. What happened, the dealers and the customers, providers, the OEMs said, uh, the car companies said, you can't have a red or a black car. Um, however, if you think about it, and this is what they did, you know, they identified that this was a single source of a material they relied on, the bill of materials. This was a single provider, single source, single site. And they did the what if scenario. And they had gone through and said, okay, if this, if this does disappear, we're not going to be able to get any capacity out of the market because the big three are going to get all the capacity, what's left in the market, the allocation. So why don't we start to design a solution for alternative colors? And, and I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was a, it was an alternate to Zerolic. And you go through the Ivonic disaster, right, with uh, DuPont, the alternative uh, solution there uh, back uh, with the explosion and uh, the Ivonic facility. Same thing. And um, here's the result, though, is... Hyundai was able to cut over to a new supplier in five weeks. 
The other OEMs, it took five months for them to cut over just from some planning around single and sole sourcing. To me, that was like, bingo, I want to be in this field and this is where I'm going to spend my time and money. I remember that quite a bit. And all of a sudden, everybody in Germany was driving white cars because it got modern. <laughs> that's, and that's how the trend started, actually. You have done this now for more than 30 years, a long, long time. Uh, quite yeah, I started awesome when I was seven years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's quite an awesome journey. <laughs> and um, as we can see here on the podcast, you still have a lot of passion for the topic of risk and supply chain risk management. So how is it that you continuously first reinvent yourself? And then also, how can you keep your passion ongoing to, to even start a new company this year? That's amazing. Look, executives still have problems. Leaders have problems. The managers, the people I'm talking to still have these problems. And, you know, I'm in the business of solving problems. I'm a firefighter. I put out fires. That's what I do. But I'd like to get out there in front of those fires. And honestly, um, it's it, to me, it's so much better now because there's such a network, a support network, people like yourself, organization like yourselves, uh, the universities, uh, it just uh, the, the colleagues and the friends you've made over the years and countries like, you know, the Philippines and Singapore and Australia and Germany, et cetera. We're, we're finally getting our act together. And it, it's great because we're learning from one another. And I don't want to miss that. You know, I think that's a great opportunity. Uh, I, I like being a sponge. Okay, let's switch topics. You, you not only want to be a sponge yourself, and work with universities, but you literally are working in universities as a teacher and you lecture graduate students at the MIT and other universities. So what is the reception of the students that you interface with to the topic of risk management? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's kind of good news and bad news there. Um, the students themselves, or in this case, you know, using the word student is really not even the right word. Some of them, you know, they're very, very successful executives that are in these programs. They were intrigued. They wanted to pursue the topic and the career further. They thought they had, in many cases, something to contribute. However, for the most part, and that's the bad news, the profession hadn't matured or developed yet. You know, and I think we're still kind of in our infancy. Um, you have, you know, areas like property, you know, being in the insurance business, right? You have property engineers and, you know, they were kind of breaking out, but unfortunately, because they were doing placement for business interruption insurance and areas like that, they were only looking at a certain type of assets. And going back to our early discussion, you know, when, when the drug doesn't get to the patient, do you care that the asset failed was asset, you know, a physical asset or inventory, or it was somebody that didn't show up to work today, you know? So I, I think the challenge was, and this is the good and bad news, there were no full-time positions, there were no programs out there, no only consulting opportunities. And, and that was, you know, um, a little undefined as well. And it requires, I mean, what they liked about it is it required a diverse set of skills. Um, we were bringing over some folks from uh, University of Maryland, from the Smith School, where I'm a senior research fellow. And there's a great gentleman over there who's since retired, but still very active, Sandy Boyce. And, and he was helping us bring some folks over to Marsh at the time. And it was great because they loved it because you needed management consulting experience, engineering experience, financial management experience. You got 
really kind of exposed to operational management, risk management. So I'm hoping that this is the journey forward and I hope we can accelerate the development, but we need more programs. We need more programs that tie into and not stand alone. They tie into operational management programs and financial management programs and technology, artificial intelligence. As you know, we, we, we talk a lot about that. Well, how does it apply to our problem? You know, I think, again, there needs to be some focus programs on that, that kind of support this career track because now it really is a career track. What do you think the future will hold for supply chain risk management? Well, I think the future, <laughs> this is going to, this is a paradox. Uh, the future is very bright. <laughs> We're going to have more disasters. Uh, they're going to accelerate the magnitude. And I don't mean to laugh, but the reality is, right, it's not going away. It's getting worse. And whether we're looking at climate or slavery or whatever topic you want to pick, unfortunately, a lot of them are moving in the wrong direction. But the good thing is that folks are working to try to solve some of these. So I think there will be increased pressure from the stakeholders, from key stakeholders, business partners and boards, and the deeper insight will be needed and it will be needed in the context of the way the business operates and what they can afford, aka the, the trade-off, right, between risk and performance and, you know, risk and your expectations of your clients. And they're going to need the ability to interrogate and model risk, which I think is just beginning now. And I mean model beyond what they do in the insurance industry from a nat cat standpoint and things like that. But really look at those what-if scenarios, failure at distribution points or other nodes. or They do it already for operational processes and logistics management. Why can't we just extend it to the bigger scenarios, right? And I think it's also the future holds a lot in terms of AI and generative AI and machine learning. Uh, with Again, and we've touched on this. Um, but I do think we're in its, its infancy, and I don't mean necessarily just the technology, but just in, in applying it. You know, I saw some mm -hmm. studies, you know, where only 5% of the leaders are actually applying it and all that. We, we've seen that with the internet and everything. We, you know, we, we've lived through a lot of those trends, and I think we've got a long way to go. But honestly, I mean, who wouldn't when you're starting to look at, like in my case, I'm, I'm tracking and trending some supply chains. If I'm looking at magnesium stearate, I go out to the AI right there and I start there, um, you know, because it gives me a nice description as to what's what is needed to go into that material, who participates. I got to go out and validate all that, but it's a starting point, right? So the more we can automate that, it's big. And I think the um, the big thing on the modeling side will be the organization is going to really need to measure the impact of nodal failure or node failure, correlated failures, and systemic failures, and then generate the intelligence to prescribe clear actions, again, simple intelligence to describe the options and actions and really kind of capitalize on this disruption. It's only going to get more instable, more people are needed. It's not only, it's not looking, yeah. it's not perfect, but it is what it is, right? We have to accept reality, move on and just do what needs to be done. And that's, I think, also the fun part of working in supply chain. It's very pragmatic. It is. And it's uh, pragmatic, right? And every day we just, um, I don't know about you, but I get up in the morning and I'll get up at five o'clock and I'll, the first thing I'll do is I'll start scanning the alerts. I'll start scanning the news. I'll start scanning, you know, it, it kind of keeps you in touch with the world and how things are changing and how things more importantly are linked up. And if you like puzzles and linkages, this is the field to be in. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Okay, to my last question, you are 
not only an icon in supply chain risk management, but also a voluntary firefighter, department officer there, and an OEM coordinator. Why are risk managers always also firefighters? Yeah, you got that right. Yes, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're firefighters. Firefighting is always risk management and risk management is always firefighting. So, but here's what they have in common there. I think there's four things they have in common. First of all, I think the most important thing as a firefighter and doing that for many decades is situational awareness to acknowledge that every situation is unique. There is uniqueness. You cannot apply a one size fits all. But of course, that gets to the second one, which says both of them require a lot of pre-planning. Um, the essential element in the understanding of the environment you're operating in, you know, in, in, in the firefighting world, you've got to know building construction and you've got to know responses and where your hydrants are and uh, search and rescue procedures and ventilation procedures and timing, which we didn't talk about, but it's huge in the supply chain risk profession. Um, Pre-planning is essential. And just one note on timing. Uh, that's the other thing I think that's changed in the profession as well, is that timing is now acknowledged and recognized uh, for a lot of people. And I think it's important because, I mean, you get an alert that a port is down and that's really good if you have some critical materials going through. But if your materials already passed through and are being staged for next year's run, you know, and you have six months to wait, right? So, I mean, this is all common sense, but right, we overlook it because we're trying to we're doing to do so much. And so the third principle, going back to the, uh, you know, that uh, yeah, commonality is, is continuous monitoring and rapid response. The first few minutes, the hours, the first few days of any event are the most critical for suppression, for getting the right intelligence, validating the intelligence, getting it to the right people. We're not the right people in most cases to make the decision. Our job in the risk profession is to get that intelligence, the options, you know, and the, the understanding to the right people that are running the critical parts of the business. So sometimes um, that, there could be some confusion in the lines on that. The same is true with firefighting. You know, when you don't have the big picture and you're inside suppressing the fire, you shouldn't be given orders for other parts of the operation, uh, including ventilation. That's up to the operational um, command as well as the overall command. And the fourth commonality is training. Training, 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 and that includes training for the worst because you're going to need much less 98% of the time, but when you have to make that rescue or that grab or you have that critical event, you know, where your warehouse is taken out by a tornado, you better have that information that says, um, here's how it's going to affect my business. Here's how it's going to affect my customers. And this happened a couple of years ago. We were in a time where there was a shortage of aluminum for uh, foil that's used on packaging. You got to know those things. So somebody has got to get that intelligence to the right people. So training is everything. As a voluntary firefighter in the past myself, I can't agree more. So oh, you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, oh, fantastic. Well, brothers in arms. I actually won an award once for uh, Youth Firefighter, Best Youth Firefighter Team in Bavaria. We scored fourth place out of 150. So, Oh, congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. Was big. Well, big. you know, one, one thing about firefighting and I hope risk management, you know, becomes like this too. We're diversified, fully diversified, quite frankly, in the volunteer service. And I'm sure you see the same thing. We don't really care where you come from, what you do, what your background is, who you are. You, 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 once you join, you're part of the brother and sisterhood. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about it is that you become a giant family and you watch out 
and nobody goes home alone and you know everybody gets home uh is is kind of our motto and i think you know when we deal with risk management i think that um unification of the forces is one of the essential elements because you're trying to get intelligence and you can't get intelligence of just the little picture you have to get intelligence of all the linkages in the big picture and you're going to rely on other people for that so and that can get competitive at times i've got one organization that i was dealing with who we was producing alerts for them, uh, event alerts. And um, we got that right. And we started giving them actionable intelligence. And all of a sudden, one part of the organization said, you know what? I I don't think we should distribute this to this group over here. I think we should just keep it within this group, you know? And it wasn't for security reasons. Yeah. So, But that's the reality. I mean, if you don't acknowledge behaviors and adapt to the behaviors, you're going to fail, period. It may take you a long time, but you're going to fail. Absolutely. So we're, we ran through the questions. Uh, thank you so much, Gary. I personally learned a lot about you and also your books again. They are great, by the way. I really recommend everybody checking those out. And I, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Uh, this is a good pod podcast. And I tell you, it was a bonus finding out that you're a brother firefighter as well. Yeah, uh, I haven't done it in a long time, though. So it's, uh, that's that's okay. probably 15 Once years a ago. But always a firefighter. <laughs> yeah, we, we were extinguishing quite some fires, actually. So, yeah. And um, for now, for everybody, maybe fellow firefighters out there or uh, anybody else listening, we just want to say bye-bye. Have a good day. Thank you. This was Supply Chain Pioneers. Thanks for watching, listening, or however you are enjoying this podcast. You can find Supply Chain Pioneers on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all other major podcast players, as well as on YouTube at Ulf Talk Supply Chain. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and comment. See you next time.